Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. I find uh, that there's kind of two types of people. There are those that love the Chronicles of Narnia, and there are those that have never heard of it. <laughs> so for those that have never heard of it, you're like, what? What are we watching? My favorite part of that scene is the, when the fawn is uh, shaking off his hoofs. I don't know why I like it so much, but it just it makes me happy. I don't know why. <laughs> it's worth watching just for that one thing. So we're thinking about this reality that the long winter of the biblical narrative, this long season of silence is coming to a close. And and so, you know, C.S. Lewis, he portrays the idea as always winter and never Christmas, but the prophetic story is about darkness and light. It's the same story, it's just sort of a different metaphor. And so as we think about what's happening in the biblical narrative, it has become stuck In a very powerful way, this narrative has been unfolding, the revelation of God, and he's doing all this dramatic work, and the story of Israel, and and the building of the kingdom, and the giving of the law, and all of the things that are transpiring. And then as the Old Testament sort of begins to weave its way down, we sort of get into this mode in which now the kingdom is falling apart. I mean, everything is falling into disrepair, and, 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 and Israel is slowly, piece by piece, being carried off into exile And the narrative is becoming stuck and frozen and lost in darkness. And what these people believed, what they put their faith in, what they trusted in is falling apart. And we enter into this period that we call the intertestamental period or the period of silence or the period of darkness in which we have a 500-year period where the last of the prophets cease writing and before we really have the opening of what's going to happen in Act 2 of the narrative. God is about to raise the curtain on Act 2 after five centuries of what we consider to be silence. Now, God wasn't silent. It's just that the narrative is stuck. There's a lot of things going on. It's just that the narrative has become entrenched and stuck and frozen. And so imagine now that you have a, a group of people, and I know it's hard to imagine, but you have a group of people who have become somewhat skeptical and cynical about the intervention of God in their lives and in their story. And they've begun to doubt at the most fundamental levels because lifetimes have transpired. And and the things that they put their faith in have fallen apart. And even though as the prophets battle to say, listen, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a hope and a future... Even though into these moments of exilic reality, into these moments of exile where everything is broken, there are these hopeful prophetic words of God. Why do you say, O Jacob, and and, and say, O Israel, my way is disregarded by my God. My cause is, is unseen and unheard. Do you not know that the everlasting God... The creator of the ends of the earth faints not. These are are Isaiah's words as he speaks to these people lost in exile. There's hope, there's hope, there's hope. Don't give up. There's hope, there's hope. And as God raises the curtain on this second act of his redemptive story, the gospel writers have this incredible task. And that task is to somehow convince the people that God is doing something big. It doesn't help that the events in which these 
this new act, this new revelation of God is taking place are so ordinary. Uh, I would just, I just always wish God would just do, you know, fantastically big things so I won't miss it. Amen? And so just imagine you're one of the gospel writers and you have to somehow convey to people lost in darkness that they have seen a great light. <laughs> that in fact it has happened out of unwanted pregnancies and, and, and a child born to peasants and taxes and crowds and chaos. God showed up. And to demonstrate the depth of the cynicism, even to those who are experiencing the miracles, they're having a hard time believing. So that Zechariah can stand in the presence of Gabriel and say, how will I know this is true? I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. (laughs) But because you haven't believed, you will not be able to speak until this thing has come to pass. Even the people experiencing the eyewitness miracles, they're having a hard time believing so, so I just want you to get this in your head. I want you to get it in your head that as the gospel writers open their stories, they are attempting to convince people that the thing has happened. They are taking these people and shaking them and saying, wake up. It really did happen. Listen to how John writes about it in John 1, 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own. But his own did not receive him, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Each of the gospel writers are going to talk about in some way this reality, that this is, the, this is God raising the curtain on act two of his great narrative of the redemptive story, but you have to wake up if you're going to see it. Luke writes about it in this way. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orally account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. In the time of King Herod, Herod the king of Judea, There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly house of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Listen to the words he says. I am doing this so that you may know with certainty the things you have been taught. Listen, that's not an offer you and I get very often, is it? I'm putting this together so that you may know with certainty. I I know you have doubts. I I know that the people living in darkness have seen a great light, some of them. I know others of them remain stuck and frozen in their story and in their narrative. And I want to wake you up. I want that you would know with certainty. So when C.S. Lewis sits down to create the, a world in which he is in some ways trying to create a parody, a, a, a metaphorical sense of how God works in the story of Israel, he creates a world called Narnia. And in this world called Narnia, he is trying to somehow convey the purposes of God, and in that he decides that the best way to do that is to create a world full of need. And the world he creates is a world that is always winter and never Christmas. And when I first read that, uh, as a young person reading the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time, which if you haven't read them, (laughs) you must and should. 
But as reading it for the first time, I was really struck by the phrase. In fact, at the beginning, I thought, that's what a clever thing. What a clever thing. That's a striking line, always winter and never Christmas. And as I've gotten older, I've come to appreciate the depth of that, that there's actually a theological reality to it, that you and I could probably describe parts of our life where we would say it is always winter and never Christmas, where things have gotten frozen and where God doesn't seem to intervene. It's the same thing the gospel or the prophetic writers were trying to say. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a new light has dawned. It's the same thing. It's just different metaphors. And the question then becomes on this first Sunday of Advent, where are you frozen? Where is it in your story that you would say it feels like the narrative has stalled out? Because we're going to talk in this series about frozen dreams and frozen expectations and frozen faith and, and frozen feelings. And today we're going to talk about frozen thoughts and the things that traffic around in our brains and what that looks like and how that works. So as we sort of consider all of that, I think it's important that we just stop and we think about this reality. Thoughts have power. I don't know if you know that, but wherever you go, there you are. I mean, you can get away from a lot of things, but when the problem's in your head, it's hard to get away from. Amen? In fact, I like the idea of frozen thoughts. I, I was thinking, what a, that sounds so cozy, that your, life, your thoughts would just you know, become sluggish, and they would get frozen, and your brain would go silent. Whoa. Sadly, that's not really how frozen thoughts work. Nothing sluggish about frozen thoughts. They aren't slow moving at all. In fact, they usually ride in herds around our brain, untamed and unchecked. And when you think about what it means to have frozen thoughts, it doesn't mean that your mind is not racing a million miles an hour. This is what it means. It means that your thoughts have found a frozen track to run in. And they tend to make the same loops over and over and over and over. And the same thoughts on the same track make the same trip over and over and over. And you're stuck. You're frozen. The thoughts are just there. And they have tremendous power. We've always known how much power there was. Marcus Aurelius writes these words, The soul becomes dyed with the color of our thoughts. <laughs> That's a disturbing thought. Soren Kierkegaard gave us a little more direct synopsis. Our life expresses the results of our dominant thoughts. Let's just linger on that for a second. Our life expresses the results of our dominant thoughts. It suggests that the world is not happening to us, that that. The condition of our life and the condition of our story and the condition of our disposition is not being forced upon us, but it is in fact the way in which we think about them that colors our world and defines our reality. The scriptures admonish us and call us and invite us to think better. Romans 12, 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, is good and pleasing and perfect will. And I say, yes, please, renew my mind. Go ahead and fix it. Philippians 4.8, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, 
whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Is that true of you? Is that, is that a working definition of the track in which your thoughts run? I think about things that are excellent and praiseworthy and true and noble. And, and if not, then how do I get there? How do I renew my mind? It's a great idea. It sounds lovely. It sounds good to think about these things. I agree it's important. Thoughts are powerful. They, they define and color the reality of our lives. But how do I change them. So I thought it might be good this morning if we just do a couple of things. And the first one is I came across an article that suggests that there are ways that you can diffuse your anxious thoughts. Good, good. And so uh, this will get really weird for a minute, but let's just stick with me, okay? We're going to do the scriptural piece in a second. So if you're, you know, But I came across this article, and in it it said, you know, if you have trouble with anxious thoughts, if your thoughts are stuck, here are some working things you can do uh, that help diffuse, you know, uh, the thought and the way they have hold over you. So here's some ideas. Uh, Number one, you can call your mind with a capital M. I know. It's a breakthrough, isn't it? (laughs) For the sake of this exercise, think of your mind as a separate entity from yourself and give it a name. For our sake, we will call it mind with a capital M. When the anxious chatter begins, then tell yourself something like this. Well, there goes mind again, chit-chatting away. Or, wow, mind is really doing his or her thing right now. In telling yourself this, you are able to create more of an external relationship with your thoughts instead of an internal relationship with your thoughts. And in that, you might create enough space between you and your thoughts to feel a little bit better. Now, you don't have to name your thoughts mind with a capital N. You can name them Pete or something else. I don't care what you name them, but but here's a thought. What if your thoughts are not you? What if your thoughts are just something that is running in a frozen track in your brain and they're not necessarily true, but they are real? They're not necessarily right or wrong, but they are present. And it might help us diffuse them if we thought about them in a new way. Here's the second exercise you can try. Imagine that it is a car radio that won't turn off. So you're sitting in the passenger seat of a car, and the driver's turned on an awful radio station. Most of us have had this experience. And it is playing a soundtrack of your anxious thoughts. You're not in any position to change it, and you can't turn it off. Instead, you must tolerate it and accept the thoughts that are there. And note that the noise is unpleasant. So the next time your anxious thoughts start going off, you start thinking, well, there's a radio playing and I can't turn it off. And I don't really like this station at all. And I have to admit that it is unpleasant for me. But it's just a radio station and it's just an annoyance. Anybody had a breakthrough yet? Good, we'll keep going. There's a few more. Number three, you can do the keychain in your pocket. You most likely carry a set of keys with you always. Try assigning each of your most common anxious thoughts to a specific key. 
When you use that key, make yourself think the corresponding thought. Someone came to me after first service and said, I need a bigger key ring. (laughs) Notice that you can carry the thought and not always think it. And that also, when you do think the thought, you can still use the key. It's possible to carry difficult beliefs in you, but not let it dictate the use or the functionality of your life. I like that one. That's kind of good. Number four, the bossy bully. Treat your thoughts like they're the bully on the playground of your adulthood. (laughs) And ask, who's in charge here? Me or my thoughts? If it helps, you can get a little angry at your thoughts. Colorful language included. (laughs) Like shoot. (laughs) Or darn. But as you assert yourself against the bossy bully, you are creating space between yourself and the thoughts that tend to define your being. Number five, thoughts for sale. Distinguish between a thought you are having and a thought that you are buying as true. Label your thoughts. Put a tag on them. Judgment, criticism, comparison, and exaggeration. Then ask yourself, Do I want to buy the thought that I am having? Count the cost and see if it is worth it to you if the thought you are having is really a good investment for you. The author concludes with these words. The purpose of these exercises is not to change the frequency with which you experience anxious thoughts, though if that happens for you, fantastic. Rather, diffusion exercises are effective if they decrease your attachment to a particular belief or set of beliefs that are not currently serving you well. Now, you may be saying at this point, why did we go through that? I just think it's really important, number one, that we understand that this deal of our thoughts is a big deal. That it's a big enough deal that, you know, the social sciences are paying a lot of attention to how to help us think better how to create exercises that might help us separate ourselves from the frozen thoughts that tend to run on a track inside of our brains. And then into that process, I want us to think together about how this idea of always winter and never Christmas begins to impact us. In this series, we're going to talk about some of the prophetic writings. In fact, we're going to spend time with Jeremiah. We're going to spend time with Ezekiel. And today we'll spend a little time with David. And David, in writing the 139th Psalm, he is talking about his thoughts. And he's talking about some things that he has come to train his thoughts about and how that might change the way in which his thoughts travel around the track inside of his head. And so for a moment to stop and to think about David's prayer and what it looks like and the four things that I think come out of the conversation. Number one. David trains his thoughts to trust that God knows everything about him. Psalms 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all of my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So David trains his thought that God knows everything about him. Can I ask you this question? 
How much time do you spend explaining your life to God? Or trying to analyze and explain your life to yourself? It seems that a lot of our frozen thoughts have to do with simply sorting and trying to make sense out of things that sometimes defy sense. That things happen to us in life, that things happen to us in our connections, that things happen to us in our network of friendships and relationships that we really don't understand. And I think we always want some symmetry to life. Amen? I mean, I, want, I, I, want, I don't mind suffering. I mean, I don't like it. But if I figure out what it means and why, then I'm okay. I mean, most of us can get through just about anything if we can have a compelling why. <laughs> This is why this is happening. This is what's going on. I can sacrifice for the greater cause. It's when we don't know that there's a greater cause. And so we spend time and energy analyzing our life. We spend time and energy explaining to God. We spend time and energy trying to understand, trying to figure it out, trying to connect the dots, trying to find the end of the spaghetti. Just me? Is it it just me? David said, I have trained my thoughts to invest in this profound belief. God knows everything about me. I don't have to spend one more ounce of energy trying to tell God what it's all about and how it all works and and what it means and why and my side of the story and how it interacts and who's right and who's wrong. And I don't have to spend any more time. I am training my mind to say this. You are, even before I speak a word, you already know. And I can rest in that. You know me. You know me, you know me, you get me, you understand me. Number two, he trains his thoughts to believe that God is always with him. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. I love the metaphor. So David is then saying, I've trained my heart to believe that God is always with me. I don't know about you, but it seems to me that uh, I was raised with a different line of thinking uh, in fact, I remember a distinct event that happened to me in seminary. And in seminary, we had uh, uh, student sermons that took place in chapel. And I remember sitting in chapel one day, and one of the students were up, and they were doing their student sermon. And, and he preached a sermon based on the passage of, uh, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, everybody, favorite verse for many of us. Which, as I recall, if you, if you do the work, the exegesis of the passage, you know, then you find out that that is a phrase that is taken from, I think it's Psalms 20. And uh, it, is a, it is a brief quotation of a long quotation that is a reassurance of God's presence, if you actually read it, that Jesus is actually quoting the psalm. But this scholar said, that's the nature of God, that sin is so distasteful that he has to turn his face away, even from his son. And he'll turn his face away from you if you sin. And so, you know, some of us said, please don't let him out. (laughs) 
Oh, but they do get out, don't they? And they do teach. And some of us have grown up with a sense of God loves me when I'm good. And he doesn't like me much when I fail. He doesn't care much about me when I fall apart, when I make bad choices, when I willfully make bad choices. Then he turns his face away. And David says, listen, as a person who has become somewhat an authority on personal failure, part of my frozen thoughts are the separation that exists between me and a God who loves me. And I have trained myself to believe that God not only knows everything about me, He is always with me. If I try to make the darkness hide me, even the darkness is light to Him. The prophetic anticipation that the people living in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the shadow of death becomes this powerful imagery as David just simply confesses, part of how I train my thoughts is I believe God knows me and I believe he's with me all the time, even in the greatest of my dysfunction and in the greatest dysfunction of life. Number three, he trains his thoughts to believe that he is a part of God's creative genius. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body and all the days were ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts. How vast is the sum of them. Were I... <coughs> Excuse me. To count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I awake, I am still with you. Do you believe that you are a part of God's creative genius? I mean, I, I, I understand that, you know, we get all sort of beat up and fractured in some ways. And we, there's things about ourselves we like and there's other things about ourselves we don't like all that much. But when's the last time that you trained your thoughts to say, no, God actually invested his image in me. I am a product of the creative genius of God. I've mentioned this to you before, but one of my biggest struggles about going into ministry years ago in college was getting into the first round of my classes and, and listening to the, the things that were being taught and the people with whom I'm sharing this experience and thinking, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can become this. I, I think the thing that is required to be a minister is beyond me. I, I don't know what kind of holy transformation is going to have to happen for me to go from being who I am to being what a minister looks like. But clearly, I don't look like that. And I struggled for months with this conversation with God of saying, I, I, I don't, maybe I'm really mixed up. And I really remember pretty distinctly at some point God saying to me, listen, I keep calling these diverse personalities to go into this mission called ministry and they keep going off to school and they keep getting their personalities wiped out and replaced with some sort of holy demeanor. And it just isn't working very well. 
And what I need from you is I need for you to go be yourself. Clearly, I never took on the holy demeanor of a minister. (laughs) But have you? (laughs) Thank you for whatever that means. (laughs) We love this chaotic mess we call church. But have you bought that lie? God's trying to make me into something before I can be useful. Don't you believe that you are a part of his creative genius? And did he put you where you are, into the family system you're in, into the network, into the job, so you could be you? You. So you could bring your gifts forward, your personality. The greatest risk of all is to be yourself. I mean, the greatest battle you fight is this constant conversation that goes on in your brain of who, should, who do I need to be now and how, do, how should I act in this moment? How, should I, how about you be yourself? How, how about you be the very best self God created you to be? Obviously, we're trying to become more of what God created us to be, but it's you and it's in you. And you are a product of God's creative. If you believe this narrative... This narrative says that you were created in the very image of God and some of the godness is in you. And that as you join with other people, the parts of the godness you lack become formed up into a body. And we form the body, the very body of Christ as we all join together to be ourselves. So that Paul devotes entire chapters of saying, listen, just because you're not the eye, you don't get to complain. If you're the foot, be the foot, but be a great foot. Stink. Do whatever you got to do. But embrace your footness. Amen? Everybody wants to have the glamour jobs, but some of us are just feet. And some of us are hands. And Paul just metaphorically says, and where would the body be if everybody ended up being an eye? He should have said, and where would the body be if everybody ended up being a mouth? (laughs) David said, I have trained my thoughts to believe that I am a part of God's creative genius. And what I wake up every day and try to do is to have God's best me, 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 in my life, in my system, in my family, in my network, being myself. Honest and true to how I was created. I've trained my thoughts to believe it. Number four, I've trained my thoughts to ask God for help. I love the way this unfolds. It's like right in the middle of the prayer, David catches himself and he changes his prayer. It's because he's, he's praying a prayer that's very hateful. Listen to how it flows. If only you, God, would slay the wicked... Thankfully, none of us ever think like this. <laughs> Away from me, you, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. It's like right in the middle of the prayer. He says, 
This is what I want. This is how I see it. This is who the evil people are. Don't I hate the people? And then it's like right in the middle, something grabs him and he says, search me and know my heart. There's a profound moment in our lives and in our thoughts when we stop telling God what to do. And we start simply saying, you know what, God? Would you help me? And would you know my anxious thoughts? And then would you see if there's any wicked way in me? Because so often what goes on in our anxious thoughts is when we believe we're helpless. And we believe that other people are creating a world that makes it impossible for us to thrive. That other people are making choices and decisions and acting out in relationship in a way that's making it impossible for us to thrive. You talk about getting frozen thoughts. That's hopelessness. That's darkness. I'm stuck and I can't do anything about it. And David in the middle of that prayer says, all right, I want you to know my heart. And I want you to know my anxious thoughts. And then I want to consider this possibility. See if there be any wicked way in me. I've gotten really good at blaming others. And maybe others have some responsibility, but that's not my job. That's not my task. That to think about what other people need to do is the quickest way to freeze your brain. So see if there be any wicked way in me. Why don't you point out what needs to change in me? Why don't you help me? And lead me in the way everlasting. Begin to fill me with truth and honesty and straightforwardness. Fix me. I'm not going to worry about everybody else anymore. I'm not going to worry about politics. I'm not going to worry about uh, all the people in my family system. I'm not going to worry about the people that are crazy at work. I'm not going to worry about my crazy neighbors. I'm not going to worry about any of that anymore. I'm not going to be stuck there anymore. And here's what's astonishing to me. How often we fail at this one point. Because here's the thing. I can try to diffuse my thoughts, and by all means, let's make as full use of the social sciences as we can. Amen? Amen. But the reason that I would make use of the social sciences is to open up a window in my heart and mind so that the Holy Spirit of God might give me a renewed mind and a whole heart. And how seldom do I come before God and simply say, you know what? God, my, my thoughts are frozen. My feelings are frozen. I read your word and it says, don't be conformed any longer, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And I don't know how to do that. I'm going to need your Holy Spirit to renew my mind. You want me to think about things that are true and noble and good and excellent and praiseworthy? Listen, I'm going to need some Holy Spirit kind of help in here. I want to open up this window in which I daily... In this season particularly, say, you know what? Come, Lord Jesus. Come. I need you in my head. I need you to be doing work in me 
that I can't do, know my heart, see my anxious thoughts, see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me, rewire this thing in the way everlasting, rewire this heart in the way everlasting, rewire me in the way everlasting. The people living in darkness have seen a God. I write these things so that you may know with certainty that these things are true. David could hardly have anticipated the power of what he's writing. That one day we we would stand around and we would say that born in a manger in Bethlehem is Emmanuel, God with us. That what David anticipated and, and came to through the prophetic words and through the work of the Holy Spirit, you and I have seen and experienced as real and certain. That Jesus came full of grace and truth, a light into the darkness, to say to every one of us, you're not alone. It was winter and never Christmas, but now it is always Christmas. He has come and he's come to you and he's come to me and we celebrate this advent season so that we embrace that we let it in because i don't know about you i am easily distracted and so the sigh of our soul in the season is to say this even so lord jesus come god would you help us As we think about what it means to have frozen thoughts, we're inviting you to do work in us. We're inviting you to help us open a window into our heart, mind, and spirit in which your Holy Spirit could do your great work. Remind us that the narrative was frozen, but it moved forward. The people in living in darkness saw a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a new light dawned. May that be true of each of us. And as we respond to your word, I'm praying that you would remind us that we need to mark this day, mark this moment. It's not enough to come and go. It is the opening of Advent. It is the preparation of our hearts for the coming of Christ. And we need you in our frozen thoughts to break the pattern, to change the track, to remind us that you know us and you're always with us. that you long to help us. I pray, Jesus, that as we respond to your word, that you would allow each one of us to open our hearts and to invite you to change our frozen thoughts. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. We pray it in Jesus' name. Everybody said together, will you stand as we respond to the word? Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.